Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is finally out in bookstores. For as long as I can remember, I have wanted to write books. I'm guessing you can relate because you have stories too. World-transforming ideas tickling your brain. A unique perspective on a corner of life somehow overlooked. Perhaps a tale that won't stop unfurling its chapters inside your mind. The dream, the ache to write, has been thrumming through your veins for longer than you can recall. And yet, something, time, confidence, life, is holding you back. Well, not anymore, if I have something to say about it. I hope you'll pick up a copy of Beautiful Writers and let me know what you think. Now, let's start the show. Out in the forest, I had this very strong feeling of great spiritual power out there. It was the kind of feeling that I sometimes have in one of the old cathedrals where people have been to worship year after year after year. The chimpanzees I knew in the old days are almost all gone. But one of the ones who was my real, I say friend, was Gremlin. The last time I actually saw Gremlin, she came right up to me and looked into my eyes. I mean, of course, they recognize us just as we recognize them. And I've always had a, a strange connection with animals. I connect with people with words. With animals, it's more mind to mind. So many things in my life seem to be coincidence, but I'm not sure I believe that anymore because things happen. I think they seem to happen for a reason. That was Jane Goodall, PhD, Dame of the British Empire, founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and UN Messenger of Peace. The clip is from a stunning new Nat Geo film about Jane and her work called The Hope, just released on Earth Day. I'm Linda Sievertson, and in this very special episode of the Beautiful Writers Podcast, Echo Edition, I will share uplifting bits from the film because I think we can all use a little hope right now, right? Reminders that each of us has a creative calling, a mission. In Jane's case, through her institute, they're restoring critical habitat to save chimpanzees from extinction. They're improving health for women and education for girls and helping young people to become leaders through the Roots and Shoots youth programs in nearly 100 countries. I thought you might want to tap into that magic for your own calling. Jane is highly prolific, one of my favorite writers for adults and children. Her memoir, Reason for Hope, oh goodness. You may be more familiar with her images watching the iconic films of a young, blonde Jane Goodall alone in the forests of Africa, being groomed or hugged by wild chimpanzees. Jane was the first scientist to document apes not only using, but making tools, which no one had ever seen before, causing Lewis B. Leakey to say, now we must redefine tool, redefine man, or accept chimpanzees as humans. We will be joined today 
by our longtime mutual friend, Keely Shea Brosnan, who has been an activist in the trenches with Jane over 30 years now. Keely is herself a gifted writer, and these two who have long wielded the power of the pen are responsible for some of the most dramatic environmental wins of our lifetime. I covered several of Keeley's early crusades in the late 90s in my first book, as well as issues that she and her husband, actor Pierce Brosnan, have helped to support, including the Dolphin Safe Tuna Act and preserving the last pristine breeding ground of the California gray whale from a proposed salt factory. They're at it again, these two, with their multiple award-winning film, Poisoning Paradise. The film, which Jane says made her angry, details how agrochemical companies are besieging native Hawaiian communities with restricted use pesticides and chemical cocktails at experimental test sites that are near schools and homes and hospitals and environmentally sensitive shorelines. The film documents local activists and their ongoing struggle to advance legislation to protect themselves. And although you might think that Kauai's plight is a local issue, this is a debate that is raging around the world in country after country. The film is really an activist how-to. You may or may not remember Keeley's work as an environmental reporter for television for The Home Show, Good Morning America, and other TV shows that she wrote for and reported on for a decade. But that's where I first fell in love with her work. You'll be hearing snippets of Keeley's film throughout this episode as well. And I hope you're intrigued enough to rent or purchase Poisoning Paradise and watch The Hope on Nat Geo and letting them influence your own echo choices. I know I have definitely become greener in my habits since tuning in. As of this taping, we're all sheltering in place due to COVID-19. As someone who travels the world 300 days a year for the Jane Goodall Institute and has groups all across China and knows the animal trade only too well, Jane is in a unique position to talk about the pandemic we now face. She's also incredibly forthcoming later in the interview about how she stayed creative in the past through the worst kind of chaos, both from divorce and the death of her second husband. I hung on her every wise word, as I did hearing her speak about her love of writing and how she accesses flow and maneuvers around writer's block. Our conversation starts where we're discussing the power of the pen as it relates to Jane's earliest influences from books, specifically Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan. It was upon witnessing monkeys on the pages of those books as a little girl that she knew she had to get to Africa one day. Wow, right? Welcome. I was born loving animals. And from the age of five, I was dictating books and stories to my mother. So I read Dr. Doolittle. I read Tarzan, fell in love with Tarzan, wanted to speak to animals like Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) Green began when I was 10 going to Africa and living with wild animals and writing books about them. So I didn't want to be a scientist. I wanted to be a naturalist and write books. So right from the beginning, it was writing and animals. And kudos to your mother. This was during World War II when career prospects for women were negligible and traveling from the UK to Africa as a young woman alone could have been seen by 
any mother as a pipe dream, an expensive and dangerous pipe dream. But she told her 10-year-old daughter, you, with that big dream born of books, that it was possible, right? She said if I worked hard and took advantage of opportunity and went on wanting to do it and didn't give up, I might find a way. And find a way you did. You and Keely are such kindred spirits in that way, how you could envision your environmental and creative dreams early on and then never let go. Keels, I know the natural world of Hawaii where you were young had a huge influence on you as a kid. Were there any books in your childhood that influenced you similarly as Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan did for Jane? There weren't so much books. I think it was learning the environmental thought process that was taking place during my era. I was in a program for gifted children and we paid for our field trips through recycling. And so <gasps> we would get to study archaeology in Death Valley or we would study marine biology in Catalina Island or we would take these extraordinary trips to Dana Point to whale watch and see the dolphins, something Jane and I have actually done together. Yep. And we funded those field trips through recycling programs. We also were engaged in a cleanup program at the Bolsa Chica State Beach that had wetlands. And it was our responsibility to go down there on various field trips and clean up the beach. It used to be known as Tin Can Beach. So I think it was really learning the ABCs of environmental education that had that impact on me at a tender age. And then, of course, when I was in high school, I read Silent Spring. And that galvanized everything for me. Rachel Carson to this day remains one of my heroes. If only we had heeded her warning in 1963. Right. We don't heed any warnings, do we? No. Climate change warnings. We haven't heeded the pandemic warnings. We just only want to do things that make money and give power. Very unfortunate. It's greed. It's greed. It's just blind greed that is driving our politicians and an unrelentless thirst for power. Yeah. And why would you, okay, you're a very successful company and then you want to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you get bigger, you become more ruthless and you become more ruthless. And all the smaller people who are nicely making a living have to give up because they can't compete anymore. So we're losing our high streets and small vendors are being pushed out and jobless. It's a pretty awful world right now. Yeah. It's a corporate takeover. It's a corporate takeover of everything. We are treating the natural world as though we're having a bargain basement sale. We're liquidating our natural resources as though we have somewhere else to go. And as you say, Jane, there's such a lack of respect right now for Mother Earth, for our web of life, for all the things that are interconnected. Millions and millions of years ago, out of the vast, mighty waters of the Pacific Ocean, a liquid fire arose. In violence, the islands rose up from the sea. In violence, a great beauty was born. These lands were the youngest part of the Earth's vast, visible surface. They were new. These islands were unique, alone, 
apart, an authentic natural paradise. Of all the growing things that existed in these islands, 95 out of 100 grew nowhere else in the world. From the mighty ocean Hawaii had risen, Hawaii was born. Today, these islands face an uncertain future, and the survival of this natural paradise is being threatened. And all the businesses also taken over governments. I had Glennon Doyle and Martha Beck on the show together, and we were talking about the power of anger. And Martha called it the immune system of the soul. She said, without anger, we would still have slavery. We wouldn't put sociopathic killers in jail. We would be just like, oh, forgive him. And I loved this quote, Jane, from you about Keeley's film, where you talked about the anger that it brought up for you. And you said you'd been speaking out about Monsanto and Dow and Syngenta and the rest for a long time, but that this film really brings out the absolute proof of the forces that are poisoning the environment. And I'd like to talk about how you two channel your anger into the written word and into films and how that makes you feel that at least you're doing your part. Well, I've been angry about many things, but I don't know. It's just the way I'm made. I don't know if it's my <laughs> upbringing, my mother or what it was, yeah. but I've never been confrontational. I've always felt that if you want to change someone, you hide your anger, you listen to them, you try and find some kind of connection, whether they have a child or a dog or something, and then you tell stories. Because mm. I believe the only way to change someone is to reach the heart. You don't really change unless it's from within. You can batter and batter and batter at them. Right. It's a bit like China today. China will not yield to outside anger and criticism. China will change when her own people want something. One of my favorite parts of the documentary, The Hope, Jane, was when you were explaining a controversial decision to align with the quote-unquote bad guys who then become the good guys. You were working with the oil company Conoco in the 80s to get a sanctuary built for chimpanzees in the Republic of Congo. And people warned you that it would contaminate your image, but you did not let that stop you. And the resulting sanctuary is breathtaking and such a successful and happy place. Well, actually, it was because of Nick Nichols talking about the bad guys. I mind <laughs> yeah. with the really bad guys. Conoco was so unbelievably, for an oil company, so amazingly environmental. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I simply couldn't believe it. Mostly they get these great big, I don't know what they are, and they drive it. When they're exploring, they make the seismic line straight and they'll go through sacred groves. They don't care. It's just a straight line. So Conoco told me, you don't have to do a straight line. You can go around a sacred site or a habitat for some animal. 
And they were so environmental that they dropped supplies to people who did their seismic exploration walking. Oh, wow. Of course, they were so environmental that they couldn't compete in the end. Oh. But at the same time, we have worked with other oil companies, but the ones who are at least putting money into renewable energy. Yeah. So the point is I spent a lot of time thinking about this at the Conoco time and thinking, well, I'm flying, I'm driving, I'm using electricity, I'm using their products. So if they're actually trying to do better, it's just flipping hypocritical to say, no, I will use your products, but I won't take a penny from you. (laughs) Sure. You know? When Cheryl Strayed was on the show, she talked about mistakenly accepting a speaking gig with an oil pipeline company. But rather than cancel, she realized that her greatest mission as a writer is to build a bridge across what we would see as a divide. And that's what I love about that Conoco example. Keels, one of the reasons why I interviewed you for my first book 24 years ago was because I was so blown away about how you had taken action with the power of your pen and the power of your microphone with that Carla Robertson story. Do you remember her and the oil company? Yeah, it was a woman in Texas who was a champion rodeo rider. Yes. And she had a facility put on her property by an oil company. And in Texas, if you own the land, but you don't own the mineral rights, they can put a facility about a few hundred feet from your door. And they did that and they wound up poisoning her livestock, her horses, ultimately her family, her son, and herself. So this was a battle that she was waging to try to figure out what was going on in her toxic backyard. And yes, I did try to work with the oil companies. They were not terribly receptive. But in the end, after following that story for more than five years and the death of her son and her father, who were poisoned by them, they came to like a big $7 million settlement. And you were relentless on that. Right. No money replaces the loss of your child and your your family, though. So it was a terrible story. But One that was important to follow because we really were trying to explain that while the oil and gas industry was very important to people and their livelihood, they didn't want to sacrifice their health and their children. This is a similar story heard the world over, Keely, where poor and marginalized people bear the brunt of toxic exposure. My home is located in an ahupua'a called Waiava in a place known as Kekaha on the west side of the island. Six years ago, I was awarded Hawaiian Homestead. To be awarded Hawaiian Homestead is a very big deal. For me, it was uh, one of the only ways as a single mother I could afford to uh, actually uh, be a homeowner. The mixed blessing was that I had no idea what I would be surrounded by a few years after moving in to that neighborhood. The late 1980s, with a lot of the sugarcane plantations shutting down and with a economy overly dependent on tourism. Policymakers in both Hawaii and Washington started conversations about making Hawaii a center of biotechnology research, both to diversify the economy and to take over some of the agricultural economy that was being lost. We have the highest number of open air field test sites of anywhere in the nation. We've had over 3,300 permits issued for such testing since it began in the early 90s. 
I think what people like you two do for me is you give me power in my everyday life. When my son and I got the book deal for Generation Green, and this was in 2008, I had worked my whole career to try to write exclusively an environmental book as opposed to interviews with some celebrities, some environmentalists. But I, my whole life goal was to write strictly an environmental book. Finally got the chance. So Simon & Schuster gives us the deal and it, they won't do it on recycled paper. And I'm thinking, I can't have sap on my hands about a book talking about saving trees while killing them. It's got to be on recycled paper. So I walked away. I said to my son, who was my co-author, I'm so sorry, honey. I know this is a great opportunity for you, but we can't do it. And he said, mom, I get it. So we walked away and I was devastated. And three weeks later, I thought the deal was dead. Three weeks later, they came back and said, okay. And they did it on 100% post-consumer waste and they did it on soy inks. But that taught me just a very small piece of action that one person can take to say no. And you risk a lot when you say no. But sometimes it has benefit in ways that we can't see. And all sorts of benefits came out of that later. But can you talk, either of you, about how one person taking small action, how it can empower them to keep taking bigger and bigger action? Oh, well, we see that with our Jane Goodall Roots and Shoots program. Exactly. The young people, they basically are mostly doing fairly small things. The main message is that we make a difference every day and we can make ethical choices in what we buy and eat and wear. And I've seen young people, perhaps from deprived backgrounds, and they start off being very shy and not wanting to speak out. But then they do something and see that it makes a difference. Mm. And they work with other young people. And it empowers them, absolutely empowers them to see that they can make a difference. It could be by action or it could be by speaking out about something. That's another way that you can make a difference, influencing your peers or your parents. I had the idea of Roots and Shoots because I found so many young people who'd lost hope and said there was nothing they could do about the future of the planet. So I try and inspire as many children of all ages as I can to take action. People here in Zanzibar, traditionally, women don't really work. They just stay at home, be mothers, be wives. I was not that kind of girl who loves to mix up with people, but being in Roots and Shoots, meeting new people, cleaning up, planting trees and helping animals. Here, buddy. It just changed me. It made me be someone new. As a young journalist, when I first met you, I was taking ideas and stories that I had collected from various people. And I brought those to a morning television show broadcasting live across the United States. And I Felt like it was my job to amplify the message, my job to inspire people and to educate them. I wasn't going to make up their mind for them, but if I could bring them the story in an intelligent way with heart, yeah. I could touch their hearts and perhaps I could create some environmentalists or some thought provoking actions along the way. So I likened it to being a Johnny Appleseed of the environment and each week, I had the opportunity to plant these seeds and watch them grow. And so over the years, I've had 
thousands of people write me letters or call me or meet me on airplanes or at events and tell me that I inspired their activism, that I inspired them to become an animal rights activist, that I inspired them to plant a garden. I inspired them to teach their children about the environment, whatever it was through these stories. So yes, I do think that each and every one of us can make a difference. That's one of Jane's most renowned quotes is that each and every one of us makes a difference. What kind of difference do you want to make? Jane, you can probably give us the exact quote. Yeah, well, I'd just say every individual makes an impact on the planet every day. And we have a choice as to what kind of impact we make. The only thing is that we talk about making ethical choices in what we buy. You know, where did it come from? How was it made? Did it harm the environment? Did it lead to cruelty to animals like the factory farms? Is it cheap because of sweatshops or forced labor? So we can make those choices. We can ask those questions. But if you're living in poverty, you don't have that luxury. You simply have to do whatever it takes to get through a day. And cutting down the last tree in your desperation to grow more food for your family or fishing the last fish, you know, or buying the cheapest junk food because you simply don't have the luxury that we have of yeah. making ethical choices. Well, that's one of the things that's so powerful of, about the movie, Jane, is seeing how you got locals to be committed to saving the forest, realizing that in saving the forest, they were saving themselves. And in some instances, those forests are now growing. Oh, they have. All around Gombe, the forest, the, the trees have come back. And in other African countries where the same thing is happening, creating a corridors along the Albertine Rift in Uganda. And everything is lovely until you get a president coming in who doesn't agree with policies like this. That's the big problem. I know. Fear that everything you've worked for and everything that people have learned and everything that inspires them could be stamped out, but you don't anyway. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about, look, I feel like this is my mission and essentially I'm going to die trying. If it doesn't work, at least I know I tried. Yeah. And how can we bring children into the world and not make them feel that what they do is making a difference? Because if you don't have hope, then what's the point of doing anything? (laughs) I know, is why I collect up stories like you, Keely, but stories, I think the media has a big responsibility here because yes, there's an awful lot of doom and gloom, but there are also amazing, wonderful stories of people who do impossible things and restore mm. environments and save animals and lift people from poverty and fight regimes. And those stories need to be told. That's have- right. She documented animals in a way that we'd never done so before. She gave them names. She looked at their behaviors and attributed emotions and feelings and ideas that we held so close to us that it defined our species. And that was a big breakthrough. That opened the floodgates for all this research. I'm proud it was able to change the attitude of science towards other animals and help them come out of this narrow reductionist way of thinking that said, we are the only beings on the planet with personality, mind, and emotion. Because it really isn't true. Well, and that was the case of Keely in your film, 
poisoning paradise, when you see initially there's maybe 10 people or 100 people protesting the big ag poisoners, and then suddenly you've got 4,000, 6,000 people flooding the streets and passing bills. This is the power that you showed in your movie about how to be an activist, how to be hopeful. That was important to me. And just to digress for a moment, you know, Jane talks about when you're poor, you don't have a choice. And that means that those of us who do have a choice have a greater shared responsibility to Mm -hmm. do our part and to help. And I think that's something that's gone a little unnoticed by those that are more privileged. And it would be great if everybody was doing something. To speak to the film, I had been involved in so many environmental campaigns. Many were successful. Some were not, like trying to save the last old growth trees, the last 1% of old growth trees in the state of California. And that was not accepted by then Governor Schwarzenegger in California. I told him it would be his greatest legacy, but he did not want to take action on that. With Julia Butterfly Hill, who we may all recall was living in a tree called Luna at the time to stop them from cutting it down. But other campaigns were wildly successful. We took part in a really successful campaign with Sam Labuddy that helped coin that phrase dolphin safe and kept Um, the current federal definition dolphin safe, meaning exactly what it said. There was no harm or capture or harassment of dolphins to catch the tuna. And that was a boycott led by school children, mainly, who said, we won't eat tuna fish sandwiches anymore. And their mothers said, well, then we're not going to buy tuna anymore. And it literally brought the tuna industry fishing fleet to its knees until they adopted more humane practices. So that's the power of a consumer. And then other campaigns like helping to save the last pristine breeding ground of the California gray whale in Lagoon San Ignacio with IFA and the International Fund. That was amazing. And uh, the NRDC was largely successful. And so there were campaigns like that where people would say, well, how did you do that? Or how did you stop the LNG terminal from being built off the coast of Malibu and Oxnard that would have been the single largest contributor of air pollution to the Los Angeles basin? And unfortunately, we were so active at the time in the campaigns, we didn't really document it. So by the time I was learning and digesting what was happening on this island where I live and call home, Kauai, I thought, we have to make a film about this. We have to tell the real story. And we also have to make it from an activist point of view so that we can empower people who need to do this kind of work in their own communities. So while the film definitely documents the struggles that are taking place, and by no means are they over because Hawaii hosts more outdoor genetically engineered crop field trials than any other state in the nation. No, I wrote about that in in Harvest for Hope, I think. Yeah. It's so important that people feel empowered to do something in their communities. After we stopped the LNG terminal in Malibu and Oxnard, we received thousands of letters from people saying, how did you do it? We've got to stop it in Ireland, or we've got to stop it in Scotland, or we want to stop it in England, or we want to stop it back east somewhere. How do we do this? And I was so upset that we hadn't documented the process. So when it came time for us to tell the story of what was happening in Kauai, I thought, well, let's go beyond passing a bill. Let's talk about poisoning paradise. Let's talk about the bigger issue, because the truth is the earth is a paradise in many respects, and we're poisoning it all the time. I think protecting our kids from chemicals 
is a common sense thing that everybody can get behind. Lee points to examples in recent years of students getting sick from pesticides used by farmers near schools. It was just this really freaky smell. And several incidents in 2008 in Waimea on Kauai, where dozens of students got sick after pesticide was applied on a nearby seed corn plot. We've seen example after example where we've had to rush children from a public school to an ER, like the ones I work in across the state, for severe pulmonary lung problems, for major reactions. We know that these chemicals have consequences. They are major irritants, there's no question. Otherwise, why would the chemical company workers themselves be geared up and suited up? And you know, the problem is, Keely, that there are some countries where you simply cannot take that kind of action. I mean, a repressive regime. Sure, yes. If you start doing that, if you start to be an activist journalist, you're disappeared, you're murdered, you're put in jail. And so this is what makes really threading your way around all these things so difficult. Yes. And in a way, it's my problem because I'm traveling all over the world. We have 24 Jane Goodall Institutes, including a very strong one in China and routine shoots in 65 countries with about 2,000 groups right across China. Wow. Treading a careful line. That's mm -hmm. why with this COVID-19, I've just written a piece, I don't know if you've seen it, but I think we posted it today, saying that this big thing now, we're going to blame China. It's a Chinese virus. And yes, it started in China, but HIV started in Africa from chimpanzees. And several nasty epidemics have started from pigs and cows in the intensive factory farms. Yeah, like SARS. Wasn't SARS and Ebola? Weren't they both zoonotic diseases? SARS began in China. MERS began in the Middle East from camels. Yeah, they jumped from wildlife to humans. Yes, all of these. Was eating the flesh of camels? That's how they got it in the Middle East? Well, they're not sure, but it might have been undercooked or it might have been camel milk or it might simply have been the rather nasty conditions when camels are sold in markets. It wasn't clear. I saw a World Wildlife Fund survey the other day that said that 84% of respondents say that they are unlikely or very unlikely to buy wildlife products in the future. Are we looking at potentially things changing in these unregulated wildlife markets because of consumer wariness finally? Yes, I think it's the pressure in China that will change China yeah. rather than people outside like Donald Trump pointing fingers and blaming them. Mm -hmm. And yes, it started in a wildlife market, but then other countries have started them too. So it's not just China. We haven't paid attention. Right. We haven't wanted to hear. We just put our heads in the sand because we want to go on with business as usual and make money. And the wildlife trafficking, which has to stop as well, it's a billion-dollar industry now. And Ugh. that brings wild animals together from different countries and they get sold in horrible, crowded conditions. Yeah. They contaminate each other and then, boom, a virus will jump to a human. Yeah. An epidemic, which can become a pandemic like this one. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping the result of this is that people stop eating animals. I'm hoping that they really give thought to eating animals. Period. 
I did that story 30 years ago for national television and people laughed at me, but I showed how animals were raised for human consumption following my research and the reading of John Robbins' book, Diet for a New America. And I was appalled by what I saw and I could never eat an animal again. I actually stopped eating red meat when I was 14 years old because I never liked it. But then I didn't want to eat chicken. I didn't want to eat any of it. And I hope that people really take this information and digest it because it would not only be good for them, it would be good for the planet. As long as they're not digesting meat, right? Right. Yeah. I'm saying digest the information, not the meat. Yes, really. (laughs) If you're out there and you're questioning whether you should be eating meat, try giving it up. You're not really going to miss it. It's so easy to give up. It's so so easy. easy. When I stopped eating dairy, that wasn't even hard. What's interesting is it's really a mental decision. That's the hard part is the mental. It's the acceptance of and the decision like, okay, what do I have to do to make up for the lack of meat in my diet? It takes maybe some more thinking, more creativity, more commitment to cooking, but it's a decision. For me, it was completely different. When I went off to Africa, I was quite young and I grew up in the war and food was just so valuable. You wouldn't say no to anything really because everything was rationed and we weren't starving, but it was difficult. And I went off to Africa. I had absolutely no idea about factory farms. I never heard of them. And I don't even think we had them in the UK. And then I read Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. That was another very, very powerful book. I think I read it in the end of the 60s. And having read about factory farms, the very next time I looked at a piece of chicken, I think it was, on my plate, I thought, this symbolizes fear, pain, That's death. right. That's right. Yeah. And so it wasn't a decision. I just I couldn't eat it anymore. I didn't actually think about my diet. I never have. I don't care about food. I just eat what's there. <laughs> Being in Africa, living in the bush, and you can't really choose. You just have to eat what's yeah. there. Yeah. You bring up a really important point because you don't want to digest the pain. You don't want to ingest the violence. You don't want to ingest the suffering. And I think that those are linked to our overall communities right now. I think if you participate in that, then you are on some level, whether it be a soul level or a spiritual level or any other level, if you're ingesting all that violence and pain and suffering, what is it doing to your body? It can't be good for you. And then let's not forget that most of those animals are raised on a diet of GMOs. So it's genetically engineered corn that they're not really meant to eat. So they're all sick. The mad cow disease, that's because cows were given animal protein to make them fatter and bigger and grow faster. And so we got mad cow disease from that. Mm-hmm. We also haven't to forget the antibiotics that they're pumped into them to keep them alive, which That's are right. the superbugs, and the harm to the environment. Huge areas of forest being destroyed to grow grain, to feed the cattle. And the methane gas, which contributes to climate change. So there's so many, many reasons if you're Listeners are exploring ideas about becoming vegetarian or even limiting their consumption. Now is a really good time. Yeah. There are some very, very moving books. And we were talking about books, but there are books out there which are life-changing, different books for different people. 
Do you have a favorite book on food, Jane? I can't think of one at the moment. Maybe Diet for a Small Planet. Definitely John Robbins' book is a classic, Diet for a New America. That will change everything. And it's written with such compassion and heart. And he was the heir to the Baskin-Robbins fortune. And so he... I love that. He said no to that money. Yeah, no to dairy. He probably got in a little bit of trouble with his family over that. But (laughs) him and his son, Ocean, are extraordinary human beings. And yes, I agree with you. It's a choice. And once you make it, it's so easy now with all the plant-based choices too and plant-based milks. And so give it a try. I love the idea too of thinking about just being a little greener. Jane, I've heard you talk before about, look, if you can't go vegetarian or you can't become a vegan, how about having it less often? How about going to a couple times a week instead of a couple times a day? And I think about how much children, for instance, are very happy with simple things. I raised my son on 360 acres of raw land in northern New Mexico. And Keely, this was about the time you and I were becoming friends. I went to the Telluride Film Festival. I was interviewing somebody there and turns out I had to share a condo with Academy Award-winning director Milos Forman. And I was a little intimidated. My husband at the time was a kind of -of out-of-work actor and this was a big deal, sharing a place with him. And our child runs in. My kid was like five years old. He runs in as a complete whirling dervish and he's screaming through the condo going, Mom! Dad, they have bathrooms here. We lived on raw land. We had an outhouse and he's banging on the glass door and he's running full steam. They have closets and carpet. And then don't even get me started on the dishwasher, the microwave and the garbage disposal. But what was so cute about it was this was a kid who was raised playing with a wooden spoon and a pot and a pan. And he was outside in nature with his little boots and no clothes half the time playing with his dogs. You know, everybody in the town called him Mowgli. He was like a little Tarzan kid, but he was happy and his life was simple. And obviously we don't even live like that anymore. And most people can't live like that. But what I like about that and what we talked about, he and I in our book, Generation Green, is just living a little greener. Where can you be more green? You don't have to be totally an echo hero. Most people can't be or don't want to be, and it takes time to figure these things out. But where can you be greener? Yeah, and also, if you meet somebody who still eats lots of meat and you immediately start telling them they have to be vegan, that's (laughs) the negative to listen. Right. So I think it's lucky, right? When I'm at home, I'm basically vegan. When I'm on the road 300 days a year, it doesn't actually work. Yeah. You can try, but you'd have to take your food with you, really. Yep. So I try, take my own stuff around, like non-dairy creamer and stuff like that. But when I meet people and I say, but I'm not pure, I still do have some dairy products. I don't want to, but, you know, and that makes them feel better. They don't feel that Mm. I'm condemning them and they're more likely to try. I love that. Diet certainly is a place where we can all be greener. If you have the space, try to grow your own. I know in the 40s, they called them victory gardens, but I do think that we should all be returning back to the land. It makes you feel good to put your hands in the soil and to grow things. So many millions of people, millions and billions of people can't. They don't have that. They're stuffed away in inner cities, in slums, in refugee camps. And, you know, they can't. 
That's what's so awful. And that brings us to the fact that right now there's 7.2 billion people on the planet and already we're running out of natural resources in some places faster than nature can replenish them. Yeah. In 2050, it's supposed to be 9.7 billion. So what's going to happen? I know. Well, I think this COVID-19 has been a taste. It's bringing humanity to its knees, literally. Joy Harjo on last month's episode said that many Native Americans knew something was coming. It was going to be related to the Earth's body. The messages were very clear for a long time. She said we didn't know what the stoppage would be. It was surprising the way it came. But I'm wondering, are we going to listen? I'm hoping that we can reimagine our way of living in certain respects. I'm hopeful. Well, hundreds of people, thousands of people will. So many people are thinking it's a wake-up call. Yep. Hoping that enough people get educated about the cause of the pandemics. And how many, I would say probably, certainly hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of people have never breathed clean air before. I know. They haven't looked up and seen stars in the night sky and have been found out during this lockdown time what it can be like, Mm. that they won't want to go back to the old polluted days. That's what one prays. But then you've got the political leaders who have made it very clear they want to get back to business as usual, whatever the cost. I know. I'm hoping we vote them out. Yes, I do hope that we're using this time to create a better world for ourselves and our children. We have more time right now to focus on solutions and things that we can do better and things that we can do better in our community. And we need to ask more of our leaders. Our politicians, for the most part, seem to be really all about themselves. They're power hungry. And that paradigm has to fall away so that we can create a new one with more equality for all. I'm hoping that we also listen to people like the young generation, Greta. She's making some really valid points. She's talking about the erosion of our topsoil. And we've been talking about it for a long time, but now we have the young generation. They're talking about deforestation of our great forests. They're talking about the toxic air pollution and the loss of the bees and butterflies and insects and wildlife and the acidification of our oceans. And they're worried that the future doesn't hold much promise for them, that they're being robbed of their future. That's why I began Roots and Shoots back in 19... Because young people were losing hope. And so Roots and Shoots is all about learning about the problem, talking about them, working out what they can do, and then rolling up their sleeves and taking action. So they're not just talking about it. They're not just demanding change. They're actually creating change. Mm. You know, they're taking action. Very important because action alleviates fear and apathy. After those first visits to the labs, people began inviting me to conferences. There were animal rights people who refused to talk to me. They said, how can you sit down and drink a cup of coffee with these people? But if you don't talk to people, how can you ever expect them to change? I've always believed that if you want somebody to change their mind, it's no good arguing, but you've got to reach the heart. Working here in a lab like this, you technicians have a really awesome 
I didn't stand there and accuse them of being cruel monsters. I showed slides and some film of the Gombe chimpanzees and talked about their lives. And then showed some slides of the chimps in the, in the small cages and said, this, this you, you know, it's like putting a person in a prison like that. Many of the scientists said, we really have never thought about this in this way. A lot of them were actually crying. And so I think this began a different way of thinking. Jane, I've heard you talk before about the spiritual power you felt in the forest and that the forest to you was very much like the experience you had in cathedrals in Europe. And I want to talk about the synchronicity and the grace because one of the reasons why people are so terrified right now is they're feeling like there is a lack of hope. There's so much corruption. Nothing's ever going to change. But if you look back on your life, Jane, and when I look back on Keeley's life, there were so many synchronistic things that happened. There was so much grace. There seemed to have been a bigger picture in play. And I'm wondering, are you still hopeful about that bigger picture? I have felt for a long time that I was put onto this planet for a reason. And I think that's what keeps me going. It's a bit crazy. but. <laughs> I look back over my life and there were crossroads where I could go one way or the other. Mm. And I never seemed to actually make those decisions. It was just this or that and I do that without thinking why or what it will lead to. And I think I made the right decisions. It's brought me to where I am today. I never planned to do what I done. I wanted to write books. I didn't want to give lectures <laughs> to politicians. In fact, I was terrified. I didn't want to confront white-coated scientists in medical research labs. I didn't want to do any of those things, but I've ended up doing them. And I think a film like the one that we watched last night really brought it home to me. How weird. I've done all those different things, but I never planned to do them. They wow. happened to me. One of the labs I visited, I was shown into this room with four chimps down each side, five foot by five foot cages, seven foot high. And the first one was called Jojo. He was a very handsome male. He'd been alone for 15 years or so. And I looked into his eyes and I was thinking of the Gombe chimpanzees lying in the soft ground, making leafy nests, grooming each other and he'd been there alone all this time. And so tears began trickling under my mask, and he reached out a gentle finger and wiped the tears away. Let's talk a little bit about writing. You're both such incredible writers. Keely knows that I flip. The way she writes about flora and fauna is some of the most beautiful text I've ever seen. I can't wait for her book. So, so talk to me, Jane, that first book, do you get in the flow when you write, or any of your books? Do you get into the flow? Does time disappear? How does writing appear for you? Yes. My big problem was that once I began writing, I was also being an activist. <laughs> and uh, well, I guess the first one, I was still with the chimp, so that was better. But yes, you get in. I can't write books on the road. I have to be, at least to have four days when I do nothing, 
but do books. So I didn't do emails or anything. Yeah. Get completely wrapped up in it. And then there comes a day when it's just a block. So you say, well, never mind that chapter. I'll start another one. And then I'll <laughs> so that's how I've basically done it. But I love writing. I just love it. You're and you know, beautiful what writing. really helped me was when I went to Cambridge, I hadn't been to college. Leakey wanted me because I had a mind uncluttered by reductionist theory of the animal behavior people. And when I was told that I shouldn't talk about animals with personalities, minds, and emotions, I knew the professors were wrong. But at Cambridge, I was taught to think in a logical and scientific way. Mm. So I could carry on with what was then rather revolutionary, talking about animals as individuals, which wasn't done in animal behavior at the time, but to apply this logical way of thinking. And I think that's helped my writing. It's helped me to think things through really carefully and realize that, well, I've said this paragraph, but actually it's contradicting something I said earlier. So let me get these two paragraphs together and make sense of it. So I love yeah. writing. I just love it. And how about you, Keely? Your writing feels otherworldly to me. How does it work for you? Well, I really like the task of sitting in front of a blank page. I think it's fascinating that you start in solidarity with a blank piece of paper and you fill it with your thoughts. So I try to write from a stream of consciousness and just write. And then I go back and I edit. And often as I edit, it starts to take shape for me. And then I understand where I have to fill in the gaps or what I need to cut. But writing about environmental issues is different, for example, than say writing about gardening. For me, gardening, it's almost like writing a poem, one long poem. Yeah, that's how it feels. I've always really enjoyed that. And I like inspiring people. So that's come naturally. I like telling stories. And I wrote for television for over a decade. And That was a different kind of writing because we always had a time constraint. So you might write something that it was five or six minutes long for a story and it gets tailored to three minutes because that's how much time they had that morning for your story. So you have to be a little bit flexible. I've written for magazines, which I adore. I'm getting ready to publish my gardening book. So I'm sitting down again with the text and really enjoying looking at it with a more mature eye right now. Don't worry about being perfect. Just write. (laughs) That's the main goal. And a book that might change your viewers' lives if they really want to write is The Artist's Way. Just sit and write. Ely, did you used to write poetry? Yes. Yes. I wrote a lot of poetry. I wanted to be poet laureate at one time. (laughs) Really? Oh, that's fascinating. Yes, I had a book when I was about 15 years old that really changed my life again, poetry book. It was called this is my beloved. And it was written by, I think, a man during World War II. And it was a collection of love letters to his wife, Lillian. And that really changed my life, that book. This is my beloved. Hard to find, probably out of print, but I'd still recommend you find it. It's beautifully written. And the war poet was so amazing. And, you know, yes. are we not today celebrating Shakespeare's birthday? Is it today? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Happy birthday to Shakespeare. Ah, you know. Oh, how I loved Shakespeare. I loved Shakespeare. Mm. Yes. That was one. I took two books with me to Gombe because I didn't want to sit reading books. I wanted to spend every second 
concentrating on what I was being sent there to do. But I took Shakespeare and didn't actually have much time to read it because I was writing up my field notes by a lantern late into the night. Wow. But every single day, getting up at 5.30 and coming back at dark. But I took Shakespeare with me because I didn't want to be without him. Beautiful. I was always wondering, were you scared? Were you ever frightened out there by yourself? I was just going to ask that. Because I live in a very rural place by myself. And a lot of people say, how could you do that? But I'm wondering, with the wild animals and being in such a remote location and being by yourself, were you frightened? Well, I mean, obviously, if you hear a leopard growling near you, it's a moment of fear. If you hear <laughs> buffalo coming along at night when you're lying up under a blanket. But I always have this silly feeling, nobody's going to hurt me because I'm meant to be here. Oh. But the fear response is important. You should have a fear response. The adrenaline yeah. rushes, and that gives you strength to do things you couldn't do otherwise, like leaping up onto a low branch of a tree, which normally you wouldn't be able to reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fear is not bad. Yeah. But I was very, very, very seldom afraid, actually. It was my world. I dreamed of it since I was a child. That's beautiful. I think the animals knew, too, that you were friend, not foe. They do. They actually do know. It's my kuleana to protect things that really are manifestations of my ancestors. It's about protecting life, land, your ocean, your water, protecting your culture. I can't sleep at night and call myself an educator and a mother and a cultural practitioner if I sit back and allow our land to be misused and poisoned. Those things are not acceptable. People my age are really starting to stand up and they've done their homework. You can never really lose when you're standing with the truth. When you look at the arc of human history, it has been people's movements that have always changed the world. It hasn't been the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or the Labor Party, or wherever it is in power in any one of these countries. It's been movements. It's been people recognizing that they are the ones who change the world. Yeah. I think everyone listening to this is struggling to stay creative in the midst of some kind of drama or chaos or loss. It could be financial. It could be the loss of a loved one. I know for me, one of the biggest hits to my creative life in the past was an unexpected divorce. And Jane, you had a very famous creative partnership with your former wildlife photographer husband who did those amazing shots of you out in the forest. When you were divorcing, was there anything, and maybe even when your second dear husband died, was there something you said to yourself or something that you held on to that allowed you to stay focused on your mission and on your creative life? Well, I think with Hugo, really and truly and honestly, right from the beginning, the little voice inside me said, this can't work forever. We were too different. The thing that joined us together was our love of nature and animals. Yeah. So when the divorce came, the only thing that really bothered me about it was the effect it might have on our son. And it yes. did affect him. There's no question about it. But I think had we stayed together, gone on bickering, it would have been even worse. Yes. <laughs> so creatively, it didn't hurt you then? No. And then, okay, so fast forward, you remarry, and you're very much in love. 
And you were with your husband for what, four years before he died? Wasn't yeah. long. No, three. Oh, goodness. What kind of intestinal fortitude did you use to help you stay creative? Because you kept on with your mission. Well, I had to because that's what I was there to do. You know, I couldn't stop. And I think it's very fortunate when people have something that drives them because you can't just give up and curl up and moan and weep and stuff. You you (laughs) yourself out of it and get on and life goes on and that sort of thing. But it was painful, it was terrible, and it affected me emotionally. It probably made me write better and certainly made me think about death and what it means and does it lead to anything or doesn't it. Those thoughts came very thick and fast. How about you, Keels, when you have something that rocks you terribly? What's your thinking process? How do you keep to your mission? I go out in nature. Immediately, I turn to nature. That's where I feel the most alive and the most spiritual and the most connected. It's where I know that I am feeding or restoring my soul and my creativity so I can go back Uh and do it again. You'll often find me in the sea. It's one of the reasons I live in Kauai. Uh I try to swim every single day. I'm looking at the surf, which is just ginormous today. I mean, it must be, I don't know, 20 feet out in front of my house. So there won't be any swimming here today because it would be too dangerous. (laughs) And for those who can't get out in nature right now because they're homebound and staying home for safety reasons, there's always your garden. And if you don't have a garden, then I suggest you write. I think writing is a wonderful release. And if you're looking for inspiration, then write about how you feel. And if you need further inspiration, then maybe write a love letter or a letter to an old friend or to a neighbor or somebody that you've been meaning to reach out to. And short of that, maybe go look at some of your photographs and try to pick a moment in time that made you happy or touched your heart or inspired you so that you can write about that. But I do think writing is a wonderful release. I think it's rewarding to look back on what you have written. And I certainly feel that everybody enjoys getting a handwritten letter. So if you're trying to be creative and feeling blocked, that might be a nice place to start. Nature leaves clues. That is a saying that talks to me. I've often felt when I was in nature that I was getting instructions almost supernatural in their effects. And going back to poets, when I talked to the poet laureate Joy Harjo about this, she said that it was about developing communication and a respectful relationship, but you have to build it. You can't just assume that that relationship will be automatic. I'd love to hear from both of you what may be the most dramatic case of nature giving you a clue would be, something hopeful. Well, I just had one. I was swimming the other day and I had this total epiphany that this moment in time is about healing, about healing yourself, about healing the planet, about healing relationships, about healing our earth, about healing our entire infrastructure, which doesn't work very well for a lot of people. So that was the message that I got. But I do think nature gives you clues. And I think you just have to be receptive and aware. And if you're having trouble tapping in, then I suggest you breathe. Just lie down somewhere. And breathe, really feel your breath in your belly, not just in your lungs, but fill your being with that. Because I think when you bring attention and awareness to your breath, you're allowing a spirit, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, into your soul. Beautiful. 
That's my thought on it. I think that if we get in touch with our breath, that that can help us take our cues from nature. It helps us center ourselves. Nice. One of my reasons for hope is this intellect of ours and science is beginning to come up with innovative ways that we can live in greater harmony with the planet. And also we're using our own brains to think about our own environmental footsteps and how we can leave as light a one as possible. I cling to the belief that because of this extraordinary intellect, we can and we are finding ways to live in greater harmony. Most scientists don't talk about hope, and yet Jane does. Jane gives that human side to the rigorous science. I truly believe that it's only when head and heart work in harmony that we can achieve our true human potential. I think for me, probably the most intense experiences I've had in nature have been quite unexpected. And they've come sometimes when I'm alone, once when I was with chimpanzees. And suddenly it's as though you are no longer yourself. You're not there. You literally are not present. And you feel nature in a completely different way. And there's no way I can explain it. It's just being there without self. And it makes everything seem different. And then you come back to Earth. And anyway, it's a very, very strange feeling. I've written about it. I wrote about it in Reason for Hope. Yeah. And the other thing that came to me in nature, this fly settled on me. And I looked at it and I thought, it's a fly. And then I thought, we love to label things. And I started looking at it as this extraordinary little living being. And Mm. it was the most exquisite colors. I've never seen another fly like it. It was almost Mm. as though it was sent to teach me something. And taking away the label enables you to see something for what it truly is, its beingness. Mm. But we do categorize. That's a fly. That's a wasp. That's a mammal. That's a butterfly. That's a bison. Instead of just feeling the beingness of them. Wow. That's well That's said. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. That's what's made your work so extraordinary, Jane, that you've been able to see things without labels. Just like when you went to study the chimpanzees, people had labels. These are not feeling, thinking beings like we are, and yet they, they want the same things we do. They want community and they're social and they want to interact with each other and be well fed and they want shelter and they play and and they hold hands and when they kiss this is the thing that surprised me the most about chimpanzees when they kiss they close their eyes like we do <laughs> wow like we do yeah. isn't that stunning that's stunning that stunning i think we do that to feel more deeply i think we close our eyes so we can feel more that's mm. just yep. a guess me stunning. Too. well i'm closing my eyes right now and i'm blowing you both a very appreciative kiss. Thank yeah, we you. Have virtual kisses now anyway. <laughs> this has been lovely. Jane, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. And Linda, thank you so much for inviting us onto your podcast. I love you. I love yeah. you both. Love you too. Thank you very much. Wow. God bless and stay safe. We'll you too. Soon. Stay healthy and well. Bye thank now. You. Goodbye. Bye. For me, good night. <laughs> good night. Good night, darling heart. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. 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 Good afternoon, good morning, good night. 
Jane Goodall. Uh, she's, when people talking about the theory Mother Nature, I think she is the Mother Nature. Dear Mother Nature, thank you for your water. It sustains all of our body functions. Thank you for your animals who are companions, show us love and teach us how to play and live close to the earth. Dr. Jane, she's been saving the world for almost 86 years now. Next year, she's gonna be 86. I wanna tell her she needs to keep being healthy so she can continue rooster shoots and be the most like heartwarming mother of all times, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Big, big thanks to Dr. Jane Goodall and Keely Shea-Brosnan and Nat Geo and the teams behind the Hope and Poisoning Paradise films. To be able to infuse my creative baby here with such world-class entertainment has been a profound honor. I imagine you're all fired up right now and recommend that you go to janegoodall.org and poisoningparadise.com to see the many ways in which you can get involved. I hope you'll watch both films. And let me know what you think on my Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter accounts. All those links are on beautifulwriterspodcast.com. I have some follow-up good news for anyone who has seen Keeley's film. The Hawaii State Legislature passed a statewide measure, Bill 3095, making Hawaii the first state in the U.S. to ban clopyrifos, a dangerous neurotoxin that Keeley says is a generation away from Agent Orange. They're waiting for the ban to be enacted and hoping the new government that takes over in November will abide by the regulations. They are also requiring a mandatory disclosure of pesticides, which is a really big win in an industry dominated by secrecy. But in Hawaii and around the world, the political battle wages on. As Keeley said to me, we all need to step up and step out and use our voices because collectively, we are stronger, our voices are louder, and the synergy of our actions is more powerful. In the past year, three different courts have ruled in favor of individuals who sued Monsanto and Bayer after developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from the use of Roundup that totaled something like 2.5 billion in damages. That, my friends, is the power of the pen. If anything you heard here has inspired you, I would be so grateful if you would take a minute to leave your five stars or love notes on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. My sound engineer, Kevin Baker of Red Room Sound, and I pour a lot of love and time into producing these shows. And I hope it shows. Julia McPherson, too, who creates our graphics and swooped in to save this episode when Tech Fails made it impossible for Keely and me to hear Jane in England. Ugh, it truly takes a village, you guys. Lastly, I would love to know how you're making your life a little greener. Use the hashtag a little greener and tag me on social. We have a profound opportunity right now to reimagine how we want to treat our Earth Mother. Let's inspire each other to make this time count. Until next time, stay safe and right on. <laughs>